0: We'll turn to our text today, and as we do that, Luke 2 is where we're at, Luke 2, 1 through 7. Uh, I'd like to turn to uh, God in prayer and ask that he be with us during our time. God, you are a good God. You are a powerful God. You are a God with a, with a plan beyond uh, what we know. Um, we thank you that in your goodness, in your might, in your infinite wisdom, you have chosen by your love to reveal some of your will, some of your plan, and some of yourself to us. We pray then in these few verses of what you have revealed to us, that through the power of the Spirit you would enlighten our hearts and our minds that we might delight in these words, that we might delight in your will, that it might change us, transform us into, into a, a Christ-likeness. We thank you for the work that you've done in history and the communication that you have given us through your servant, Luke. Amen. Luke 2 is, uh, is, the, is the continuation of, of the Nativity series here. I, I want to, uh, we're doing a, a Nativity series, as you can kind of see uh, you know, on the screen. We're doing a Nativity series uh, this, this December. It seems like a good time to do a Nativity series. Um, but I wanted to, to look at this. As a word nerd, I really wanted to, I really, I don't know, I feel like the word nativity. I've always wondered, what is this? So I kind of looked into this a little bit more. And uh, kind of what frames a lot of my understanding of, of the next few, few uh, sermons, especially today, is that by definition, a nativity, if you look in the dictionary, is a place of birth. It's not just, you know, Christmas time stable. It's a place of birth. The nativity of Jesus is this place where, as, as John uh, describes where God, this threshold of where God becomes man. That's, that's a huge deal. The nativity of Jesus is the unexpected threshold of King Jesus and his ex- unexpected entrance into the world to live among us. And he does this all with purpose so that we might rightly receive Christ this season. We might receive his unexpected love, his unexpected power, his unexpected reign, and we might extend those to the seemingly unexpected people in our own lives. I love this idea of the nativity. And we're going to come to a very uh, maybe unexpected portion of the story that revolves around a census. So let's turn, uh, turn our attention to that now. Out of reverence for God's word, I'd ask that we stand as we read these verses. This is beginning in verse 1 through verse 7 of Luke 2. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So the question I'm going to ask a lot today how do we live in two kingdoms? This idea of a two kingdom, uh, citizens of two kingdoms is very big and has been for, for the church for most of its existence. It's a question that we may not have asked that way since we don't live in a kingdom right now, uh, per se. But it's a question that we, that we do ask in, in different ways uh, throughout our daily lives. This idea of, uh, of how do I um, live as a Christian rightly uh, under a government I don't agree with, maybe that's a better way to ask that. How do I, uh, or a government that I do agree with, uh, how do I live rightly? If I work for a bad boss, how do I live rightly as a Christian? If I have a clumsy leader, whether that's at home, whether that's uh, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's in church. Whether that's in any place, how do I do this well? How do I be a citizen? How do I be a part of a kingdom that is maybe structured of this world, but do that with the mindset of a citizen of a kingdom ruled by the great King Jesus? How much then do I do that? Even within the two kingdoms, there's how much do I lean into one or the other? Uh, maybe if you've if you've dr- driven stick, I'm terrible at driving. That how much accelerator, how much clutch do I give? How much is there play in this? How much art happens between our Christianing and our and our worlding? I don't even know what that is. To quote a uh, common Christian phrase, maybe it's uh, how much in the world is there, uh, as opposed to of the worldness that we have. What, what is that sweet spot of where we live as Christians? Well, the context of this series is on the Nativity of Jesus, we might ask the question, uh, which, which, which kind of begs the question of how do we celebrate Christi- uh, you know, Christmas when we're labeling it winter break and holiday break. And I don't want to go there. Um, the, uh, that is a question. That is a good question. I don't mean to roll my eyes at that. I totally did. And I'm glad it's not recorded. No one else can hear that. I just rolled my eyes at that question. Um, whatever. Uh, the, uh, uh so I, that, that is one question. It's a very surface level question. Um, I believe, though, that God's message to us through Luke 2 is, is less of a seasonal topic. We put the Nativity at Christmas time, but it's actually like a message for all time. And so I don't want to just think about that there. What is the impact of Jesus coming into the world in every day of our life all year long? We'll be asking a bigger two kingdom question today. Question like, how do I live under a certain government? How do I work? with these kind of people, or this kind of boss? How do I follow these kind of leaders? The question again is, how do we live in two kingdoms? So, here's a great thing about this. The Spirit through Luke, Luke is our author, our human author, the Spirit is the, uh, is the inspirer of all scripture. Through Luke, the Spirit partly reveals his answer here in these verses, and he does so with Wes Anderson-like subtlety. It's so amazing how Jesus just appears in the text here. In the days that an emperor's decrees of one of the greatest empires of all of history, he sends this decree out and it resounds throughout the world. We read that in there. What happens is that we end with the echoes of this decree and the entrance of the Messiah King, the Savior of the world. Ah, oh, it's incredible. In seven verses, we get that we go from Caesar to Christ. So, I guess if I want to give you a, a, an urge, I'll just use maybe, uh, maybe, maybe Jesus's language here. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God what is God's. I'm not going to go into that passage, but I think that principle is pretty, pretty good there. Give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to gods what is God's. How do we reconcile these two kingdoms? So the way I want to do this here is I'm going to front load a lot of our work in the text here in the sermon today. So there are three points uh, because I know three is the magic number. But, but, but really, there are going to be two kingdoms. Point one is going to be uh, looking at uh, the, the kingdom of the present. The present king, that is Caesar. We're going to look in our text at Caesar and talk about that, not simply for them, but also maybe who Caesar or who our Caesars are today. Then we're going to move to the, the second point. We're going to look at this idea, set it up there, of the promised king, the promised kingdom, that other world. So we get the two kingdoms, and then we want to spend more of our time uh, just developing, what do we do with all of that? Uh, so if you if you you know buckle your seatbelts, get your get your fingers limber and ready to jump into the text here. Um, we're going to set it up: the present king, who is Caesar, and the promised king, who is Jesus. So here we go for the first two uh, for the first two points. The present king is Caesar. Keeping in mind that we are reading only part of Luke's gospel here. We're good readers. This is a good uh, Bible reading principle is to remember the main point of all of what Luke is saying. So if you have a Bible, you can go back to Luke 1, 1 through 4. Oftentimes, the the biblical authors will give you a reveal. They will just say, this is why I'm writing to you because that's just how people do. Good authors kind of give you that. Sometimes it'll be more subtle than others. Luke is not subtle. He just lays it out for you. Uh, He says, this is verses 1 through 4, I'm going to paraphrase it for the sake of time. He says, it seemed good for me also to write an orderly account for you that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I love that. I'm writing this. He's basically saying, I'm compiling everything I found, and I want to write you something that will give you certainty about what you believe. So... Part of Luke's message is that Jesus, the God-man Emmanuel, the promised Messiah King, the Son of God and Savior of the world, is a real human being in history, who interacted with real human beings in history as part of his real redeeming plan for history. In short, Jesus is real. That's his big point but also he goes a little further. He says Jesus is real and also Jesus is the Lord and Savior of the unlikely, of the unlikeliest of people. If you were here last week, uh, Pastor Thomas beautifully uh, talked about uh, Mary being an unlikely servant uh, to be chosen to carry Jesus. I think he does that. And he wants to make known that this is a real thing in history because it helps us to understand that our real situations in life are no different. Like, that, that's a big thing that we find there. Sometimes we think, oh, does he, have, does he have an ax to grind? Is someone telling him this is all made up? Yeah, maybe. But if we get out of academia, or get out of that, that, that conversation, just get here, we have real lives. I'm positive all of you are real people. That's good. Uh, uh, that's an assumption I make every week. Um, uh, and you all come with real stuff. And not simply here, but everywhere. You take that real stuff, and we can take that real stuff to a real historical document, talking about real things, and there's a real God. There's, there's a reality to this. So his point is not, I want to win the, scholar, the scholarly debate. His point is, this is real. You can lean into it with everything you have, because it means something. So it makes sense in his historical, uh, his historical uh, approach here proving the reality of Christ, who is for us the most unlikely of redeemed people, that he would load it up with a whole bunch of historical figures. And that's exactly what he does. Now we're ready to read it. Um, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor in Syria. Before that, we've also heard this is the time of Herod. So, there is a map on the screen for you to see what's happening here. I made sure it was incredibly tiny, so even the people in the front row could <laughs> doubt their eyesight. Um, so here's the generality. So uh, you just kind of go in that green blob there. That's Samaria. You might, if you see Samaria, you have good eyesight. Um, the top part of the green blob is, uh, is where Nazareth is. That's where Joseph starts this story. The lower part, kind of in the middle lower part, right above the word Judea, if you read that, that's good. If not, we're in the green blob still. That's Bethlehem. There's a mountain range there, and the mountains look not like the Rockies, more like hills. Um, That's, they have to go up, so you read Joseph goes up to Bethlehem. That's why it says he goes up. He has to go up and ascend up to Bethlehem there. So that's some geography there for you. That's where we're at. That's what's going on. This is a real map. So if I, if, I, if, I, if I say this maybe a different way, to Luke's point. Real things happened in the time and place. This is a historical map that should be in any good scholarly atlas of the Bible over time. It just so happens that this is also the nativity, the threshold of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This is where this happened. That's why this map matters. So if we go to another thing here, we're reading about Caesar. So let's, let's zoom out here a little bit more. Can we go to the next Slide. That is more or less the Roman world. So when Caesar sends the decree out, that's who hears it. Now, if you look down at the bottom right, that's the Red Sea. Uh, there's a, the body of water there. Uh, just that little area, that red area around it, kind of just north of it, that's the map that we were just at. So it's only one fraction of the Roman world. So the Roman world, uh, Caesar was God and king over all of this, uh, this area. So when he sends out a decree, this is the world we're talking about. This is the world that ran much of the whole world uh, at that time. So that puts you in a real time and place. Hopefully you can see that well. If we can go back to the, the previous slide, I'm gonna leave it there as I kind of keep, keep talking about stuff. Thank you. So we read that some real things happened here. Uh, uh, the scope of, uh, of, of Caesar's reign was, was really important. Uh, we read that... Uh, literarily one king is going to say something that gets it all into motion. Caesar sends out a decree that the whole world should be registered. Caesar's authority is over the whole world. He is top dog. He is uh, uh, the the only one who can decree to this level and make people move. I mean, it's a very inconvenient. Uh, Mary's, Mary's pregnant. She's about to give birth, but she gives birth while they're there. Like, that, that, people don't just get on a donkey and ride up a mountain at the words when I say that. This guy has some power here, and it's not even that. There's, there's tons of other people having to move around. He can make people move and act in a way that no other can because he has that authority. And even more, he's believed to be possibly divine. He has something that no one else has, as Caesar he is it. He is the authority in that world. And now, uh, what happens then is his scope of of, of what happens uh, is is all over that world. But his purpose for that is is really important here. We're gonna we're gonna flesh this out a little more next week when we talk about the angels. But but he, his goal is this thing that we may have learned in history books called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. He wants to keep the peace. And so, how do you keep the peace? If you are a a, a governor at this level and you don't have, you know, uh, I guess, how do you keep it at any level there? Well, a lot of times, we want to say, when you uphold democracy, well, it wasn't so much a thing entirely at this point. It was developed and whatever. We don't need to go there. But uh, you're going to count your people. You're going to get your money from your people and you're going to figure out where your troops need to be. That's how you're gonna keep control of these people. That's how you're gonna keep the peace in something this big. That's what the census is doing. He wants to know how many people are there so he can say, okay, you all give me this much money and I'll send that many troops there. So what, what, he's, what he's achieving here is this peace across the Roman world and in this area you know, of, of Bethlehem, of Judea, of Samaria, he's, he's achieving that peace more so as a peace by way of power. Uh, maybe another way to say this that helps us transition into our own lives today is, is he's looking for an alignment to his decrees. He, he's saying, do this, and, and, and I need your money so I can pay the people who are then going to make sure that you are very much aligned to what I decree, if that makes sense. So then who is our Caesar today? I think it's very easy for us to say, oh, he's top dog, our top dog, and we go with Donald Trump, right? So that is there, and as Christians, we need to hold Donald Trump in an area where we think of Caesar and God and those things. I wanna expand that a little more to all government is there. What do we do in good and bad government? How do we, how do we rightly follow Christ in the midst of those? Uh, maybe even, even spreading that out, as I've already suggested, take that into our workplace, Take that into our culture. Take that into our church and our homes. We'll come back to this, but, but I really want to establish that the Caesar for us today is not this Caesar, obviously. But we have these kind of authorities, and we know these authorities by those voices who try to align us to their view, align us to their will. Now, if it's a good godly will, great. By all means, Go but we need to be cautious not to be aligned to the wrong will. I'm going to pause there. We'll come back and chew on that a little bit more because I want to look at, then, the promised king. Who is the present king? Caesar. And for you and I, it's probably whoever that voice is or whatever that thing is that calls us to align to their will most. But then the promised king comes. In the midst of this, this nobody named Joseph and this nobody named Mary have to do something about this. Let's read that text again. It's been a couple minutes. Verse four, and Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was, a house, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So two nerdy points about Bethlehem. We read, Joseph went up to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, if we're reading our Bibles from cover to cover, which we didn't do right now, I'll speed up that process here. We've heard of Bethlehem three times before, or maybe four times before in three different books. Uh, so we hear of Bethlehem, if we remember Parkview Mines, remember all the way back to the beginning of summer, uh, we were in the book of Ruth. Uh, we hear that, uh, that Elimelech and his family are from Bethlehem, the house of food. Uh, And so also, when they return, Boaz is from Bethlehem. So we've got some great people that are from Bethlehem here. We're going to build on that. Matthew helps us connect the genealogical uh, branches of the family tree here. In Matthew 1, he he explains Boaz, who's from, uh, from Bethlehem, and Ruth. He says, Boaz fathered this guy named Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. I'll clarify, that's King David. So we have, we have Ruth and, and uh, Boaz, then Obed, Jesse, David. I'm really big on that because 1 Samuel 17 is going to drive it home. 1 Samuel 17, speaking of this David who will be king. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem. We're still there in Bethlehem. In Judah, and his name was Jesse. We've heard about him. The prophets say that this this there there is a root from this or a a branch from the stump of Jesse will come and he will be king. So all of a sudden, there's something really important about this this line of, of Jesse and of Obed and of Ruth and of David. The last time we hear of Bethlehem, this very, very special, very, very small city in the Old Testament, we hear it on the prophetic word of Micah who reveals not a prediction, a prediction is just guessing what the future is, but he's, a, he's prophesying a future reality that will happen but has yet to come. That's the difference there. And he says, Micah 5, 2, you can read it on the screen, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you all come forth, uh, from you all come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So we hear two things in here in Micah. One, uh, uh, Bethlehem is this is podunk, nobody knows who this place is town. The other thing we hear is there's something really incredible about Bethlehem. And this here, he's putting, uh, God is putting this, this prophecy, God's putting Bethlehem on the map and he's saying something special is going to happen the ruler of Israel will come from here. Now, some people say, oh, praise God, that's, you know, King David. Micah happened after King David. So there's another king that will, that will come. So we're going to go there uh, now. We read that again. We read verse 4 again. Joseph went up to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem. See, there's something special that happens when we slow down and read our Bibles here is that we can could, we could read through and be like, oh, yeah, the city of David and Bethlehem. It's the same place. This historian trying to make a real historical case of Bethlehem for some reason chooses the theological name of Bethlehem. See he says he goes up to this town called the city of David which by the way is called Bethlehem. That's really important. Why would a historian say let me show you some of my religious cards here real fast because no one really knows who Bethlehem is. They've heard of it. But but no one's really calling this thing the the, the city of David. But this historian is saying, I want a historical account to be very clear. By the way, it's the city of David. Why does he do that? He does it for two reasons. On a literary level, he's going to set it up because the logical reason for Joseph to go be registered is that he's from the lineage of David, right? He's of the house of David. He needs to go to the city of David, and then he can be registered. That's how it works. So there's a very practical way for that. There's another reason why he sets this up. And here comes Jesus. Because there's a lineage. There's something special about David that happens here. Luke is setting up the glorious entrance of the long-awaited Messiah, King. The branch from the shoot of Jesse. The prophet's promised Messiah who will come from the royal lineage of of David. Let's read the last part of verse 4 again. Because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. So in my horribly shortened translated Bible, I write, something's cooking in Bethlehem. This is really big deal. There's a lineage. This king is coming, and, and, and we're starting to see God's plan get lined up. It's like all of those pieces are moving, and all of a sudden, Luke is saying, a king of the of the roman world is declaring a decree and people start moving because of this decree and they happen to move to this prophesied town where a new king will be born there's a lot of irony going on in here caesar is not running the show guys something else is happening in this text so who's joseph's companion so he goes with him that's not all of verse 4 i think uh, now we'll be into verse 5. It says, Joseph went up to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was, with it, uh, who was with child. And we just kind of move along. This decree comes out, and all of history is showing that things are aligning, and King David, I'll suggest that to you. Oh, also this lady who's pregnant and not married, and she's going to get registered. In the original language, verse 1, the beginning of verse 1, and the beginning of verse 6 start with the exact same words. And I love that. I mean, for us, if you're reading ESV, it says, in those days the decree went out, and then in verse 6 it says, and while they were there, they're literally the same words. And I I wish we could keep that in the the, the ESV because it suggests a parallel two kingdoms happening. So it suggests subtly, at one time, in one kingdom, Caesar decreed to the world. And then we get verse 6, and at the same time, from another kingdom, King Jesus entered that world. That's incredible. I've always just read this thing and been like, all right, get to the good stuff. The angels are coming. This is amazing. Like, this is, this is the, the most subversive government movement that's happening. Who is your king? It's asking us. It's screaming that at us. Who is your king? Did you move when Caesar said move? And how are you going to move when this king shows up? And his entrance, though I'm making, I'm really excited about this. Obviously, I'm like crazy excited right now. Um, his entrance in you know we think like okay cue up the band and the fanfare and you know this is you know Aladdin that you know like when they had the big old make way for Prince Ali like that's what I'm thinking like make way for King Jesus here we come this is going to be great and his entrance is so incredibly unspecial let's read it verse 7 and she Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. And then we move on. Come on, like that was it, right? That was the show. Now, John will make a much bigger deal about this uh, the, the entrance, that threshold, that entering of the God man, the Word of God incarnate, becoming flesh. He's gonna make a huge deal about this. You just read it John 1. It's huge. But he also does the same thing here. He says all of this is amazing and he's coming through this threshold and and the God man is entering into his creation and taking on flesh and he says the same thing as he says here. And then he like set up camp with us and he just camped here with us. That's what John says. What does he say here? And then he's laid in. Okay, so the manger is is the doggy food dish and the inn, you can debate it, it's really kind of more of like an upper room, not really the stable, but it's like in their house. Their pets were in their house, so that's a thing. Um, It's like, uh, how about over here where the dog sleeps? There it is. Why do we get that? Like, I am like offended when I read that. Like, that is not what you do to the king of the world. Our king cares about the real mundane stuff of our life. That's what it teaches us. And also, he doesn't just care about it in theory. Our king lived in the real mundane stuff of life. Well, praise God, we have a God who knows that stuff. Oh, you cannot outbore Jesus Christ. He has seen it all. <laughs> you cannot underwhelm Christ. Not only does he already know you, he made you, but he also knows the stuff of this world. He's been here. We aren't without an advocate who doesn't know, who has not been tempted in every way. I'm not making that up and saying weird things. That's scripture. There's a real God who even though the world was moving and, and a census was being taken, chose at a really bizarre time to just be a normal guy and come into this world because he loved it so much. Oh, that's incredible. So what do we do with that? There we go. They're, they're setting up the text for us now. I, w- I want to think through this. And maybe I'll do this concisely because I'd love to just dialogue at this point with you. Like, what does this mean for you? And I encourage you to do, wh- what does it mean? Like, talk to each other about this over lunch. Talk to, talk to each other about this uh, family dinners. Man, what a great question. What do we do with this? What do we do with, 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 with Caesar and with the king and all of these things? Uh, for the sake of our time and maybe orderliness of a sermon, um, I'll just run through maybe three truths that we can glean from this, and then three implications off of those truths. How do we have certainty? If Luke is really writing this for us so that we can have certainty to what we believe, what are some of those certainties that we can have? So the truth one would be that God has a providential plan. I think we see that here. Now, I want to clarify because there are very many educated people in this room. I'm not speaking to free will or predestination regarding salvation. So just go there, clear the space for that. Um, The text isn't talking about that stuff, so I'm not gonna talk about it. However, I'm gonna follow the passage here and try to reconcile the questions it brings about and attempts to answer. And those questions are, when, how, and why will God fulfill his promises? Why did Micah say Bethlehem? That's weird. Why did, why did we talk about this king coming from Jesse? That's weird. Why are all of these things being said, and we know that you're a God who keeps your promises, so when are all those going to come true? Like Abraham, you said you blessed the world through this thing. You said back in Genesis that this son of Eve and crushing the snake, when's that going to happen? Those are weird things. It, all of a sudden, things line up here, and a baby's born and they're all fulfilled. God is working beyond what we may see. So we right now in 2018 live in a certain time and place. The people of, that are reading this or that are part of this story live at a certain time and place uh, around 0 BC, the year of our Lord. That's, his birth is the beginning of all that. They live in a time and place where they're thinking things, and they have rules of things, and they have issues and problems there, and we have issues and problems here. What's happening that we see that this king says, says, I need to take a census, and within that, the real king illustrates that he has a plan that's over all of those things. We just live in a small segment of that overarching plan, and at some times, through certain people's words, I think Calvinists and Arminians can agree on this, that God has a plan, and he reveals it, and at times, he has specifically given a more intense focus on that plan, and right here, he is just wrapping all of those together, and he is saying, this is King Jesus, and that's so beautiful, and if we miss it here, because it is very subtle, he's gonna haul in the whole choir and they're gonna sing about it in the next verses. God has a plan. So what do we do? We trust that plan. God has never failed any one of his promises. So not simply this. I think there's times where you get into work and you say like, "Ah, oh, this, oh, this is awful. You know, like this is, my, my boss is so, so dumb. We were doing this last week and now it just flipped and now we're doing this or we're doing these things and I just got thrown under the bus or whatever those things are there are frustrations in work that are real because we work with only sinners. And that's really motivating. Um, what do we do with that? I think sometimes we have this, this thing, this dualistic notion or, or a Gnostic vote notion of like work sucks, but praise God that I can go and unplug and detach and escape from this world and be in Christ and that'll be there. No, there's... The incarnation tells us that he cares, cares about our body and the real stuff of life, like he can be here. Don't do that. Don't escape your work and pray to God and do those things and then go back to the evil work. There's something that happens when we smash those together because he is smashing that together. He could have put a big cloud in the sky that says, everyone repent, this is real, I'm serious, now you're forgiven. He could have said that, right? I mean, he, he spoke and created everything, he could do whatever, but he didn't, he became a baby, so that he could walk with us and experience it with us and redeem us. He does that, so don't do that to your family. Don't do that to to the members of your family who you think this is worthless. Why am I sitting here being with you in this conversation? Why am I reasoning through you on your terms? Because he does. Why am I going to work when it's awful and it has no purpose? Because he goes to work when it seems awful and it has no purpose. God has a plan we trust that plan, but we'll never trust that plan. So that was your first truth. God has a plan. Your first, uh, your first application or implication from that is trust God's plan. So um, uh, we can't know those plans, or we can't trust those plans if we don't know those plans. That's the second truth. From God's plan, he speaks. He reveals it to us. He has spoken it. A lot of words that he's spoken to us about it. And it seems that they all are pointing to the same plan, that God loves People and wants to save some forever. That's it. He created something good and wants it to return to that goodness again. And that goodness is dwelling with man. And that's the, that sets the whole thing on course. In the Hebrew, there's a word for hear. In Hebrew, there's a word for obey. The word is shema. Sorry, I said that wrong. In Hebrew, there's a word for hear, and that's shema. In Hebrew, there's a word for obey, and that's shema. Hear and obey are literally the same word in Hebrew. You read Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel. It's called the shema because we hear it. I'm seeing nods. You're connecting the dots there. We can't hear the word of God. We can't obey the word of God if we're not in the word of God. You need to read it. Now, in English, read and obey is not the same word. You probably figured that out. To trust his promises means that we must first know what it is that he has promised, to hear and obey him. As readers, we must read and know him. We must know what is said in his word. Here's something that I love about our children's ministry up here at Parkview North. Is that that's what we're getting into? We're showing kids at their level very scripturally tied lessons, and walking them through it. If you ever want to see it, it's awesome. They, like sit down, like our it's like our two younger classes. They sit down and they have all these like figures and stuff, and they like walk through and act out the story, as they're reading it in the scripture. It's that's so cool. Um, our our older kids, uh, in the uh, in the in the orange room, they're being catechized now. Before you like walk out because we're stuffy and weird. What that is, is we're teaching them to memorize the truths of our faith, so that those kids, I, I, I'm so excited for the next year or two when those kids start coming into our service, and all of a sudden they start knowing more theology than we do, uh, or they at least have quick recall for that. Uh, it's going to be amazing. Like, we are actually, like, preloading our worship to be even better in the years to come, because we're teaching these kids the, the story of Scripture, and then we're teaching them the truths of Scripture, I mean, you ask any of those, those people that are teaching uh, in that class, and it's, it's bonkers how fast these kids cling to those truths. My kids are like three years old. You saw them up here. Uh, the three-year-old, I can ask her a question, and she just repeats this thing. I'm not the greatest teacher, and I'm not really disciplined to do it in a habit way. It's just something that sticks. We need to be in it. The point I'm making is not that my three-year-old is a genius or I'm an amazing teacher. It's that people get this and can understand this, and we just are in it a couple times, and they get it. What would happen if we read Luke 1 and 2 a couple of times? We might understand the nativity a little bit differently. And that's good. That's a step in the progress. That's where we need to go. I think sometimes you think, I don't think I could preach this. You don't need to. I'll do that for us. You guys just read it and figure it out and take a step toward understanding a little bit more. Because in it we're going to find that he requires much of us, but it's always for our benefit. Truth one, God has a plan. Truth two, God speaks from that plan. And so, as we are citizens of two kingdoms, we trust that plan. We go hear and obey that plan. The final one would be from his plan, God fulfills in his time. And I think this is a hard one for us today, so I'm gonna spend a little bit more time on it now. So what do we do? We need to trust in God's timing. It's like, uh, uh, the thing I love about Advent and we're explaining this to my kids uh, as well, and it's getting, it's, getting, it's getting difficult, is that Advent is a season of waiting. I, I love that. I think in, in, the, in, the, in the church year, there are different things that, that we wait for. There are different things that we hope for. There are different feelings and emotions that we have. In Advent, we have this, this time of validating that we're really impatient people. Like I think sometimes we just have to like condemn it and be like, God, forgive me, I'm impatient, blah, blah, blah. But in Advent, in, in the time leading up to Christmas Day, Like, is it time to like really embrace it and be like, I am impatient, but what am I impatient for? I'm impatient for this king to be born. I'm impatient for all of those things that are bad in life. Like, when will you come, Jesus? Like, I want that. I I don't actually want to keep coming to church and confessing sin and hearing that and taking the albums and being with my people and reading your word. Like, I don't want to do that. I just want to be to the end. I read to the end. I was impatient. It's fantastic. I want to be there with you when it's good and we don't have this problem of, 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 of sin and, and hurt and pain. And, and we all understand rightly. I don't have to convince anyone that you are Lord and Savior. It's just there. And we know, I want that. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And Advent, we just get to embrace it. and say It's okay. It's okay to want that. It's very okay to want that. It's okay to want that even more than you want the immediate to be resolved, but there's patience in it because in Advent, it pushes us to not be stuck waiting for something to happen, to not be going to work and hating it and looking up and saying, when, to not be talking to our unbelieving family and then looking up and saying, when, to actually get to work. It gives us meaning in our work today. we must be patient in the waiting. So I'm going to quote Tim Keller because why wouldn't I? He makes me sound smart when I quote him. So Tim Keller, he says it this way. In a book he says, uh, in a book he wrote called uh, King Jesus, it actually walks through, um, through the book of Mark. He says, patience is love for the long haul. It is bearing up under difficult circumstances without giving up are giving in to bitterness. And now you can read it there. Patience means working when gratification is delayed. It means taking what life offers, even if it means suffering, without lashing out. And when you are in a situation that you're troubled over, or when there's a delay or pressure on you, or something's not happening that you want to happen, there's always a temptation to come to the end of your patience. Patience. You may well have lost your patience before you're even aware of it. However, patience means working when gratification is delayed. We keep at work. We keep at work. I I think my gratification will be the day that everyone believes. And as a preacher, that is a demoralizing task. (laughs) But we keep working even when that gratification is delayed. It may mean praying and talking and and, and crying out to God that your spouse just get it finally. It may mean that you cry out to God that your finances stop speaking to you at the level that you are a failure. It may mean that your work finally understand they're making some bad decisions. They might get in trouble. They need to clean up their act. It may be some of those things. Patience means working when gratification is delayed. What patience did Christ show us as we scream at him, crucify him? And he just goes up on the cross. Come on, lightning bolts out of your hand, kill everyone and you're not on the cross. Patience. What gratification is there when he puts to death, death. What gratification is there when he brings peace, not in a forced way, but through his death on a cross. Ah, You let the powers win, and in that, they lose. Now, this is an incredible God. This is an incredible story. This king does things differently. He's not screaming, believe me, love me. He's screaming, I love you. Look at this. I'm here in the dog dish. I'm with you. I love you. Let's do this that is our king that is an incredible king and that is a king not that we could take home because i just said some nice words and made him seem really relatable that's a king who's been relatable we just don't talk about him that way that much and that's a king who your worker or your coworkers need and your boss needs that's a king who our president and our government officials need that's a king who can rule us. And as as citizens who are in two kingdoms, how do we live rightly that way? How do we go in and take the census, but also worship our Lord? We give homage to Caesar, but then what do we do with God? I think someone actually really asked this one. In Luke 20, someone does ask this. They say, oh Jesus, tell me, how do I give my taxes? Should I give them to him? To the king here, or should I keep those for your tithe? What am I doing with this now? And Jesus says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. Whose name is on this? Whose image is on what is Caesar's? There's a very American thing that we can thank our government officials for. They're protections that we can come and meet and and freely express ourselves. That's part of our government is allowing us to come here, and no one, not even the government, can come in and say, get out, stop doing this. Like, that's awesome. We can give to Caesar what is Caesar's and thank him for that. Where's God's image? Ooh. Everywhere. In us. That's a big deal. How do we live as citizens of two kingdoms? Quoting more scripture, we must seek first the kingdom of God. So, I think I've set it up enough. I'll just finish out here. Uh, In our politics, we need to seek first the kingdom of God in our politics. However that may be. There's content of what we seek. There's a message that needs to go out. There are values that that Christians stand by that need to go out there, but something we don't do so well in our politics is that we also need to communicate in the way that Jesus communicates them. We get that part wrong. That's more. I don't need to tell you guys. What do we need to believe as Christians? We have have the religious right, and we get that. Communicating it is the problem that Christians have today, Uh, doing that in a way that makes the other side seem like demons, Uh, makes the other side seem dumb, makes the other side seem like they just eventually will get it and join our side. We need to be careful about how we speak to political matters and how we pray for political matters in our workplace. Our work, our, our work doesn't, need, uh, doesn't need us to just sit there and hate on it. Our work needs Christ. How do we display the manner of Christ in our workplace, in our culture, in our church, in our home? Maybe I'll just pick one of these here. Um, in our churches, uh, there's this idea of all of these, that these Caesars, are, they, are, they, are, they are vying for our alignment to their view. Your boss wants your loyalty to 60 hours to 80 hours a week, right? Your, your, your politics wants you to pick one of two parties or get on board with one. I think those are the three spots you could be right now in America. Our culture says spend a whole awful lot And our church and our home get a little funny because it feels a little more Christian than the others. So as someone here behind the pulpit and a pastor of our church, um there are times where we as pastors uh, uh present to you plans and ideas um that we feel are good and, and within the will of God and within the nature of God. But I want you to know that like there is a way to talk to your authority, a way to talk to pastors that is respectful and right and, and should be held. But I also sometimes worry that we think too highly of our pastors, that they're untouchable. And I just want to be a pastor who's saying that, like, we're not, we're people. Like, I've been in the meetings. <laughs> we sit there as people and say, what do you think it means? How do we do this? Just the same way that you guys do it. Um, now, we have a role, and there's, there's an authority with that role. But don't let us run wild with that. Like, keep us accountable to that. Don't let your bosses run wild with that. You need to call them out and say, I can't actually do this. Don't let our government run wild with that. There's a proper way to speak the truths of God in this kingdom. And there's a message that needs to go out. So, to wrap it all up here, how do we live as citizens in two kingdoms? It would be to give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God, and above all, seek first the kingdom of God. As your kids come back into the service, let's pray.